This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. I am Edward Hertzman, founder and president of Sourcing Journal. Today, we're discussing on-demand manufacturing, how it works, the current capabilities and limitations, and why it's an, a necessity today. We're joined today by Marlene Vogler, founder and CEO of Zeal, an on-demand apparel manufacturing platform and retail service that creates custom, quick-turn, private-label apparel collections that alleviates inventory investments for brands and retailers. We also have Pete Santora, the Chief Commercial Officer of Software Automation, a company that has developed robots which sew without direct human labor. Pete, Marlene, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, thanks, Ed, for having us. Uh, my yep. pleasure, my pleasure. So, Pete, let's just kick it off with you. Um, question, what does on-demand manufacturing mean today, and what does software automation do exactly? Uh, oh, all right. Good, uh, good question. So on-demand manufacturing is the ability to make a good um, only and when the order is placed. Um, so it inherently uh, keeps this idea of, of uh, no inventory in mind um, and thereby uh, increasing or reducing the kind of working capital that you have and, and product in stock. Um, that you have. So uh, for us, um, software automation, we're um, like an autonomous uh, driving car for sewing. So we're like the Tesla of the apparel manufacturing industry, um, just in that we, we use cameras and sensors to map fabric, uh, the actual uh, weft and waft of the fabric, and then robotics uh, to steer the fabric through the needle. Um, the main technical risk in this is that when a needle strikes the fabric, uh, the fabric distorts. And the traditional solution has been um, more hardware to hold the fabric in place or applying some type of 
um, starch to make the fabric more like wood. Um, but the, the difficulty with that, um, and the reason why it hasn't succeeded has been that it, um, it limits the flexibility. And as we know, um, only, uh, the future really only has more skews in it. Um, so we like uh, flexible fabric. We like lots of different styles. Um, and that's why this move towards software as the ability, uh, literally software, W-A-R-E, um, to help automate has uh, been an attractive value proposition. So, so what are some of the types of clients that, that uh, software automation has today? Um, so software automation has um, brands, retailers, and contract manufacturers um, as clients. Uh, from uh, home goods to uh, footwear to apparel. Um, and they're, um, yeah, they run the gamut between uh, bath mats and, um, and mattress covers to, uh, to T-shirts and, and, um, and running shoes. Wow. So it's a pretty diverse, uh, 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 you know, group of products that you guys are able to produce today. Yeah, I mean the 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 you know our goal is to create this this um, digital manufacturing platform, and and we do it really with um, uh, with three or four robots uh, that can work across the different spaces. Um, really, it just becomes about some of the particular customizations to produce that style. So rather than focusing on a particular material with a particular operation. And then building a lot of hardware around it, the software has allowed us to um, to broaden the the impact of the of the technology. So, Marlene, you know, kind of the same question. When it comes to Zeal, what what is your capabilities? What makes you uh, you know an on demand manufacturer? Yeah. So, what we we provide basically the servers for brands and retailers to sell their own line of high performance athletic wear apparel, but with no minimum order quantity and delivery in under 10 days. So what we do is we are completely turnkey, turnkey service where we uh, take care of design, uh, manufacturing, but also uh, drop shipping to the consumer and integration with point of sale systems and e-commerce systems. And, and we do that for a couple of different types of clients, whether it's uh, celebrities and influencers, where we even integrate e-commerce into the website for them. And, it, you know, they, they, they basically they get a check at the end of the month for, uh, for everything that they sold um, to working with uh, bigger brands that, uh, that might need, uh, you know, in-season replenishment really quickly or want to have hyper-local offerings for flagship stores. Uh, and we also work with, uh, with let's say, non-retail brands uh, like fitness chains that are in need of, uh, of private label and where we provide the full service. And their advantage with us is that it's all on demand. So like Pete said, you know, there's no working capital um, and there's a lot of advantages to it because you can be really quick with on-demand manufacturing. So you can quickly rotate collections. You know, you, you don't have discounts and markdowns, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's what we do. And so we're building out the whole platform that makes this really easy for our clients. That's fantastic. Um, it's really, uh, it's amazing uh, how, how, how the apparel industry is truly evolving. So, so Pete, you know, you talked about bath mats, sheet covers, t-shirts. Um, when I hear those type of goods, I think um, uh, very simple, um, um, 
manufacturing. The, you know, the line is is pretty simple to set up. But when it comes to uh, more uh, handwork or products that require a lot of embellishment, um, are we close to being able to automate um, uh, a manufacturing process that could take care of those type of products? Um, you know, where are we in the in the evolution of automation? You know, what can be automated today and what cannot be? So, um, yeah, so the, I mean, a couple of different things in that. I mean, <clears throat> we definitely aren't in a place where everything is automated or even a short time horizon to full automation um, across all product uh, types. Um, it, it's, you know, the embellishment, uh, the embellishment piece has a lot of automation that's coming into it, whether it's embroidery or print, um, again, depending on uh, if it's a specific type of trim, um, that may be different, but part of the embellishment market, I would say, is um, is got a lot of automation in it, um, and you'll see that is kind of a, a part of these fully automated um, facilities, uh, the ability to add the embellishment. Um, and some embellishment, like trim, is also uh, kind of... Um, provides a higher margin product. So for us, our focus on automation is really about the basics, uh, kind of the core technical block. And then um, we see uh, Seamstress is really going up market in, in selling operations that add a kind of a, a premium capability to the product, which may be, um, you know, it may be a pair of jeans with some type of frill trim on the bottom of it or something like that. So um, that's kind of how we. So um, you, you kind of beat me to the next question, which I was going to ask is, you know, how critical is, is physical human labor going to be moving forward? Is, is it, do you see it kind of as this hybrid between part automated part uh, still human, human capital requirements in order to produce the, the spectrum of products that, that consumers want today? Yeah. I mean, you know, consumers will, are, are only going to, you know, the demand for more SKUs is only going to go up. We can't think that demand for SKUs is going to go down. Uh, so the, the speed at which we want the good and the, and the, the range and, and variation of the good are both going to significantly increase. I mean, we're, we're talking about it, but it's, uh, but, but it's only going to increase beyond what we think. So, um, so for us, really, we understand that, um, and we think, and we know that sewing is really hard. It's a very complicated um, process. Material is complicated, so it will be uh, human hands will be incredibly important. And I think the biggest issue with that, from a from a corporate perspective and a cost perspective, is they just like to train seamstresses on the easiest. Uh, the easiest skill and get them working as fast as possible to get their biggest ROI. And, and they're really going to have to upmarket their seamstresses. And so um, it's not that seamstress jobs are going to be disappearing. It's that the cost to uh, educate them and, and give them a bigger skill set is going to increase. Yeah, and I think, by the way, that what Pete is doing is really important for uh, for the you know for the renewal or the you know the increase of manufacturing in the USA as a whole of apparel. Um, if you look at on-demand manufacturing and the need for it, you know the the current expectation is is that about uh, 15 to 20 percent of all apparel made you know is much better made on demand than in the traditional uh, uh you know buying uh, large quantities from asia kind of method 
Um, but, you know, if you look at the last 20 years, what's happened in America, the overall apparel industry has really uh, been basically decimated. Um, and therefore, a lot of skilled labor has left, uh, has left, uh, you know, has disappeared, uh, has disappeared. And in order to, you know, make these companies, uh, in order to facilitate the move back of these volumes from Asia, you know, not all of them, I mean, but, you know, if you want to move 15% back of all the volumes that are now made in Asia, you know, if you want in the long term move that back to America, you will, we will have to do automation. We will need, you know, we need, you know, we will need 10 peats. <laughs> and, um, and therefore, it's really important that what he's doing right now with uh, the basic blocks and being able to automate those and then add on where they have the specific, more complicated task uh, uh, with the seamstresses. And as his technology and that of others evolves, you know, we can automate more and more. But there will be so much demand, it will, there will never be, you know, there will never be too, no, no work for the seamstresses. There will always be work involved. So Marlene, you mentioned that you specialize specifically in activewear. Um, why did you decide to go into that segment of product? You know, that's not the easiest stuff to produce. It's slippery fabric. Uh, a lot of the fabric has to be imported. Um, why did you choose that segment? Well, there's, there's, there, there's, there's two main reasons. One of them is the Pete, uh, the, the, uh, is the reason that, that Pete already mentioned the, the long tail of brands is happening. So what you see in the apparel market overall, but even more in the athletic wear market is there's, there's more and more smaller brands. And um, on top of that, uh, and that's especially strong, uh, that development is really strong in the active wear market. And if you have more smaller brands, you have more SKUs, more options, and in total, lesser quantities per option. Which, uh, uh, which creates this need for on-demand manufacturing. Um, and secondly, there is, um, you know, the activewear market is, one of the, is, is next, next to accessories, the fastest growing segment in the apparel market right now. So those are the two th reasons that chose me, you know, that, um, that, that made me make this choice. And by the way, I'm a former athlete myself, so personally I have a larger interest in activewear <laughs> than, than in, you know, specifically ready to wear. Um, yeah, and it kept me focused, you know, do one thing really good first, build out the platform. And once you have the technology down, you can extend into ready to air uh, somewhere down the line. I think that's a very smart business strategy. So obviously no one has a crystal ball, but, you know, if you had a guess, you know, how far are we away from a truly 100% automated supply chain? Is it even possible? Um, so is it possible? I, I mean, we, uh, we look at things from really, um, you know, the, the technological capabilities, um, of, and the math and science of automation, as well as the, uh, the product and the, the product operations, um, and, and the market. So I, I think, you know, as you look across those, uh, pieces, Right, basics are definitely fall kind of um, in that uh, in those categories, um, and for those uh, t-shirts, um, footwear, t-shirts, uh, and, and specific types of footwear in particular uh, for all of these goods. I mean, I, I'm trying to be. I'll try and be a little bit more specific. It's just hard to call it exactly, but footwear, uh, t-shirts. Um, Kind of in the next 
uh, 18 months to call it, or maybe two years, uh, fully automated. Truck backs up, uh, materials are taken off. Um, they they go through a, a, you know storing process. They go into a, um, a collection area, maybe a, a spreading, cutting, uh, construction, and embellishment wherever the embellishment may sit. Um, and then some type of uh, finishing and and then uh, boxed and shipped out the door. That that will, in the next two years, you'll see those two products um, enter that process. Um, and then you'll see kind of jeans um, and then you'll see maybe like a dress, um, uh, like a printed dress or a dress shirt uh, kind of sometime after that. But yes, for, for those products, and again, I, I mean, that's very general to say those products because of the style, um, the number of style and, and variations to each one of those products. But generally speaking, um, I see all the tech, I've seen all the technologies with my, my own two eyes on the factory floor or in some showcase that can do every single one of those parts. Um, so there's no reason to think that, um, that we can't put all those together for, for 100% um for 100 automation and obviously the other categories of garment construction whether it's ginning or spinning and the fabric um, those are already mostly automated so yeah i see see it heavily automated um in the in the next maybe starting in the next two years and then um going through the next 10. yeah and i think in addition to that if you pull the supply chain a little bit forward to include design there is, you know, um, there's others, but for instance, we are also already using AI to figure out what is hot right now. Not what's hot, what hot, you know, yesterday, what is trendy tomorrow, but like what is trending right now, which is already informing the design decisions that we make for our clients. So part of the design process uh, is already getting automated. So this is the inspirational part. Um, and, and you also see that, you know, we starting to use tools that help generate designs uh, for our clients. So that's not fully automated yet, um, but I think in the next few years, big steps will be made with AI to, to enable those things, which then actually really feeds straight into fully automated factory. So for, so for the brands and, and retailers out there that are listening and saying, you know, this is very interesting, you know, how could I get involved in, in you know, automation, you know, uh, um, reducing my inventory liabilities? Is a company like Software Pete, um, do you, do you sell the robots to factories? Is it, do you have facilities where people have to work on site there? Are there other companies in this space? Obviously there's been a lot of press this past year about flex and Nike. Um, you know, who, what, what's the market look like right now? Just from a, from a competitive sect and how do, how do people get involved in this? Um, okay. Some good questions. So uh, I, I think the major thing that's, you have to understand that Nike and Adidas really have built up a culture of, uh, of innovation and R and D and, um, and a process of commercializing R and D. Uh, no, the other brands really haven't. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, major apparel brands, they, they don't, uh, they spend less than 1% on R and D. They're not really designed for, um, they're not really designed to, um, to take up automation in a big way. They're really designed to maybe follow, uh, a trend that's already taking place. So, um, so, you know, because the, the strategy is usually design a product, 
um, source uh, source it, um, and then get a contract manufacturer who can uh, tweak it, and then the contract manufacturer comes to an automation uh, or a machine vendor to uh, get solutions for that product. And I, I don't think the the uh, the future of uh, the future of these fully automated um, products is not, uh, at least in the short term, it's not designed that way. So I think the first thing that has to happen is um, brands and contract manufacturers need to get on the same page with, um, with the, one, their potential for being disrupted, and two, uh, a, a you know a team a team. Um, Kind of communication strategy or a team strategy around how to actually offset that risk. Um, that's the first thing, and I, I think that um, we're starting to do. You're, you're starting to see. Um, you know, if you talk if you talk about how this applies to to competition for us, is I don't I don't have any competition. The the alternatives for automation are just really low. They're very specific to. Uh, material and operation. They just are uh, to this point. Everyone spent a lot of time and effort in a particular, making a particular operation really, uh, really um, well. The issue has been they've always had an operator to feed it or take it out of the machine. And you can't do local manufacturing uh, at scale if you have to have a person to feed a machine, even if the machine does something. Um, in an automated way, if you have someone feeding it, you kill the ROI on the uh, on the process. So, um, so that means you have to start looking at how goods the the way a good is designed, um, and you have to start designing for automation. And I, I think that's our, you know, the biggest challenge that um, it, we face is really talking to clients about um, about their culture and and how to work together. But I mean, we are a machine vendor. We sell to the contract manufacturer um, of the brand or of the retailer, um, and uh, and so it's a collaborative effort between the brand making orders and the contract manufacturer accepting uh, some type of um, uh, investment into this machinery to make those orders. So, Pete, what's what's the challenge of scaling here? How does a company like Software Automation scale? Well, I think for us, it's, you know, it's finding the right partners um, to start. I mean, you, you don't, I mean, look at even Flex and, and Nike and Speed Factory. Like, they're not scaling their R&D. They're, they're, um, they're commercializing R&D, right? So brands want to buy a, a widget and they want to immediately apply to their North Star product. And then they want to scale it. Right, like I, you know, I want dresses, and this is this is uh, this is the high selling product, and I, I want to go with this. Let's automate it. Everyone get on the same team and let's automate. Right, sourcing's involved and designs involved. Um, the problem is there's just no automation, uh, and there's no automation involved in that decision uh, in that decision process. So, um, so you, you have to look at how these guys are. You know, guys who have been doing it before, um, how they take uh, how they take uh, early stage work and they develop it for scale. And I mean, all of our products come off the line, ready for twenty four by seven production. That's not the the only challenge. I mean, you have a whole supply chain around it. How do you get material just in time? 
How are you managing the employees? How is who's working on it? What how's it come off the line? What's the unique customization for that? Or you know how are you going to build variability into it? You, you're you know what's going on with the labels? Like you have to manage um, all of these different pieces. It's really what you're 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 building in. So it it's not a um, it's not a just go find the machine and. Um, and buy it and put it in. And you'll see this with the contract manufacturers. They're struggling. Like the brands are coming to them saying, listen, we want automation. We'll support you, but we want automation. Go find automation. It just, you can't just go out there and, and purchase it and expect it to be ready for, uh, for, for scaled uh, manufacturing. So I, I think that's the, um, regardless of our technology and its capability as it comes off the floor, you, you have to build the muscle memory um, of of how to. I mean, Marlene didn't start her company yesterday, um, and you know, it capable of now, you know, being able to do these different products and uh, in ten days, and you know, you have to build the whole system, um, and you you can't just go to a machine vendor and be like automate. And you're going to get this system, and so I think that's the that that's the you know what we have to pick the right partners because we have to have that commitment and that mindset. Um, and just look at sorry, but H and M uh, right Bloomberg just announced, and so did some other people. H and M reported on their earnings, and they have a 4.3 billion dollar inventory problem. Um, and um, interestingly enough, the products that they're reporting on, right? So it's grown 12% um, over the last uh, quarter uh, year to eight, almost 18% trade in stock. Mo that when they report on what the products, it's t-shirts and jeans. Like we talk about all these products, but but the the basics are at the core of this inability to be um, to be flexible. I mean, they're still trying to sell Halloween t-shirts. Um, that's a, that's a, just a problem. And it's not just a problem when you go to sourcing and say, Hey, what's the product that you want us to really focus on? It's also a product, a problem when you go to investors, uh, and the markets and they're like, wait a minute, you can't even adjust for t-shirts. Um, you have $4.3 billion inventory problem in t-shirts and jeans. Like that just, uh, that looks like a fundamental problem. Well, I mean, the, the greatest retailers in the world are not immune to overexpansion or poor planning or, you know, making the wrong buying decisions. And, you know, it's it's very interesting. I mean, we could have a whole nother conversation sure, sure. on H&M, but, you know, here's a company that's really um, um, has been just a market leader for years. And it's finding itself uh, in the front pages for, for doing the things that a lot of the retailers that it's been uh, you know, way ahead of, um, they're making some of the same mistakes. So, um, it's, it's quite interesting. So every it, company at some point will be burned by a bad buying decision. Absolutely. And but, if but, you're, and if you're young and you're an upcoming brand and everybody loves you, you don't realize that, that, that once you're a big established brand <laughs> 20 years later, 25 years later, these things happen and, and, and maybe a lot sooner. But that's why I think if you look at you know, Zara and Walmart and Amazon, these are almost logistics companies that are operating that are in the apparel space or the footwear space. Whereas if you're trying to win on a product cycle or just because you had the right product for the right six months, or you have the right influencer or the right, you know, celebrities wearing it, like you could always hit the right cycle. The question is, do you have the right economics, uh, you know, uh, you know, business economics to have a sustainable long-term uh, fashion brand? And that's a completely separate conversation.
Um, and I think that's what's what's complicated. But, you know, Pete, you brought up something interesting is that and this is this is something that um, I find a barrier, not just in automation, but in speed to market. So, you know, here's a company, company X wants to, you know, bring product in in four to six weeks. Um, but yet it still decides to use a nominated trim supplier from Hong Kong. And it takes, you know, two months to get that 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 label from supplier X. Well, that completely just uh, negates one's ability to turn the goods over fast, or it's 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 added all these you know testing requirements, or it has imported fabric. So, to your point, um, a robot alone cannot solve all these issues. It has to be a complete, almost cultural shift and buying shift. And and when do you see that when people are saying, hey, okay. Um, I want to engage and, and I want to start to reduce inventory liability, make stuff on demand. Are you seeing them still saying, well, you know, we, we still have to nominate the supplier and we, we, we get our fabric from this vendor. And is it counterintuitive to, to them wanting to, you know, um, start, you know, taking advantage of some of the technology that's out there? You, you know, the R and D and and any of the innovation groups generally report to the chief, uh, the chief global supply chain officer. That's the wrong report. I mean, I I, I think uh, you know they don't have the hierarchy set up uh, for that. The the chief global supply chain officer is responsible for global supply chain. Um, and when we talk about creating these new products, what we're, we're, I mean, when we're talking about automation to start, um, he is responsible for scale. When we're talking about automation to start, we're really talking about uh, potentially a net new product, right? We're not having to say, okay, if I change the label, that's an extra three cents. Oh, that's going to kill the, the innovation. Like you can't, you, you can't, I can't, it, it's difficult to take a product, especially a North Star product, one they love, um, and then just automate it and not change anything because the design was made for people, uh, for people to construct it, not change anything and just expect that um, you're going to have a win because you're not and you're going to face a lot of people in that, in that corporate structure who are like, hey, I own that label vendor or I own this or I own this product and that's three cents and four cents and how do I get that and where am I going to get it from? And so the, the the success has been in really designing basics that may be uh, a little bit different, right? Maybe they're a different product. It's a different skew and it doesn't report to the same numbers that, um, that a, a product off of the shelf reported to. And so I think... Um, you know, I think that's part of what we work with customers on is not just is is not just helping them get automation, but it's helping them un understand what it will take to get from a a, um, a get to no inventory. What does that look like? Um, do you really get what no inventory looks like? Because if you don't you're going to create a process that um, has a bottleneck in it. Right. And, right. We and yeah, we just focus on removing bottlenecks. So I know we, we, we spoke just, just for a brief moment on, on flex and Nike, but you know, I think what, what flex and Nike did is it took, it took um, this concept of automation and on-demand manufacturing and, and, and even our, our industry to the mainstream media. And, um, 
you know, this is no longer, you know, obviously sourcing journal is, is for the trade, but we find that a lot of the, 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 um, issues that are plaguing our industry are now making, you know, front pages of the, whether it's the wall street journal or the New York times, um, whether it's trade issues or whether it's technology innovations or whether it's, you know, retail disasters or opportunities. So, you know, when, when you do have something like flex and Nike, you know, gracing the covers of, of, uh, these newspapers or websites, does that create an interest from the rest of the industry? Do, do both of you guys get more phone calls? Hey, you know, we see Nike's doing this. Does that create a, a curiosity and a demand? Um, that's good for uh, companies like yourselves. And does that also, you know, make other companies that are maybe afraid to get into this and say, Hey, you know, we don't want to fall behind. We, we need to start thinking about how we, we change our supply chain. I see a definite shift happening in the last two years. When I initially started thinking about, uh, you know, building zeal, people were looking at me like, why, <laughs> why are you doing this? You know, like, well, you know, 40% uh, oversupply, 10% undersupply, you know, 60 to 70% uh, uh, markdowns and, uh, and, and write-offs in the market on average. There's a huge financial problem in this industry. There's a huge environmental problem in this industry and it can be solved in one go by going on demand. And people are like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and now you see, I see that the tide is turning. People have heard of it. They talked about it or they read about it. They, my dots, you know, we're definitely getting, uh, we have, you know, we're getting a lot of phone calls. We're getting a lot of interest. I have, I have more, you know, we're, we're growing as fast as we can. Um, so it's, it, the, 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 the tide is definitely shifting. I do think, you know, for the much larger companies that are out there that are, ha they have an interest. I mean, they're, they're huge, huge companies. And indeed when you have a, you know, a global uh, uh, VP of sourcing, they, you know, everything in these companies is geared at the culture, the processes, the systems, everything is 100% geared towards uh, the traditional way of manufacturing. And for these large companies, in, uh, you know, to do a successful pilot and a test, they have to let go of all of that. And that takes, you know, guts and it takes time and it takes, you know, somebody in the organization to stand up and, and do it and, 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 you know, protect the person within the organizations who are actually doing it. Otherwise, it's not happening. So I think the mid-sized brands and retailers, they are in and they are more flexible and they're ready to go. Um, and everybody's held, you know, everybody else has heard of it, but like, okay, but how do I do this in our organization? Because like Pete says, it's not like, you know, okay, you just get an automation and it's done. No, it needs to, every single step from design all the way to delivery has got to be, uh, uh designed differently the processes. In the so basically uh, you both, you saw the biggest lift in business after speaking at the sourcing journal conference last, last October, was that, was, is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. And, I mean, I, I just had to plug that, you know, I had to plug that yeah. there. But, you guys were great there. And it's interesting, you know, we, we did produce a lot of content, um, you know, uh, based around your panel. And one of the reasons we're following up with, with this exact podcast is, you know, we do survey work and we talk to our audience quite often. And, and this is a topic of interest. And, you know, it's twofold. One is, you know, speed to market. And that's, that, that's a, that's a buzz, you know, phrase right now, if you want to call it that, that I think it's just being overused. And, and then automation is, is again, is, is another term that's being overused and people don't effectively e even really understand it. And I think that's why it's important that we have these conversations. And, and to your point earlier, you know, in December, I was uh, in Bangladesh, I was in Pakistan and I see 
automation is 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 not just you know uh, to your point when you said earlier pete it's just not a robot making a, a garment from start to finish i noticed you know back pocket embroidery um this factory owner was telling me you know what used to take maybe 20 people in a line in a week he has a machine now yeah maybe it cost him a hundred thousand euros but he could do ten thousand pockets in a day and it but it's more than just the the one or two people that operate the machine instead of 20 there's no rejection um it, there's more accuracy so he has you know two machine operators instead of 20 and then we see that you know the shipping department has has, has it's, it's being more automated and the boxing department and so little by little by little each department is is it's becoming more automated um and i think that's where we're going to see um a lot of changes especially on the logistics side of the business it's going to become almost completely automated in the next uh, few years uh, you, you guys kind of agree with that yeah, I mean, I'll just yep. go go back to you know the fact I've seen every, I've seen it all done. Like I've seen every single part of it automated. There is nothing. There's nothing in you know before and after the sewing that I haven't seen automated. Right. I mean, autonomous driving vehicles, uh, uh, all types of uh, different robots to pick up or, or move something around, box, tape all of that stuff fold. I mean, no, none of that stuff is, um, has not been solved for. So, so, you know, you see that kind of, um, automation. I, I will say that if you have, um, if you have 20 seamstresses or working on a product, then you're so people heavy that maybe you just use one more person to box it. Right. Right. But but that all suddenly could change uh, overnight if if you could uh, if you could automate the construction of the good, then everything just falls into place and you go from this idea of, yeah, the factory of the future is kind of in the future um, to suddenly like, oh, well, geez, I, I, you know, just a minute ago we were doing everything in um, in Asia. So I, I think. Um, yeah. I, I well, well, you make a good point that, you know, there's a lot of this stuff to your, to your point. I, I've seen it too, in the sense that, you know, you look at genealogy and, and, and how they're doing laser, you know, lasering all the, uh, on the denim. So you no longer need a, you know, um, sandblasting or you need the, the manual, you know, people grinding the denim. Um, and it's amazing the accuracy and, and what could be achieved. And the speed of, of what that machine could actually, you know, the output of that once you, once you have it in your factory, but if it's only really found in the grade A factories because of the investment cost that's required. Now, yeah, if you're doing, you know, you know, millions of units a month and you, you have clients like Inditex, you know, you, there's a cost, uh, you're able to afford such a machine. But what is the investment? I mean, like, what type of investment are we talking about for companies to even completely redo their factories or to engage in a company like software and buy the robots or you know, even buy some of these machines. I mean, it, it seems that it's rather expensive. Am I, am I accurate in saying that? I mean, yes and no, I guess. Um, so if you, if you compare it to, um, if you compare it to the value, no, but if you compare it to a worker, yes. Right. I mean, if you are suddenly saying, Oh, well, I could just hire, uh, you know, there's actually been a lot of innovation R&D work done by machine vendors in this space that have never sold even a unit of their product because what they automated could also be done by a person, right? And so 
basically people are just like, well, why am I going to add that automation in if I can just hire, you know, add one more person on? But uh, it now suddenly kind of the writings on the wall about what the future of people working in this industry um, and how fast they leave and want to go to a retail job and all of those things. So um, really it comes down to almost everything we do uh, is a focus on uh, a two-year ROI. Um, so how do we, you know, how do we produce a certain uh, productivity of goods uh, in a certain time frame for uh, to get payback within um, a around two years? I'd say that the variance to that is um, is if you have customization to your product, right? You're gonna have you're gonna have dollars associated to making that product uh, specifically happen. And I, I, I think that becomes, um, yeah, just something you have to write off as a one-time, um, as a one-time investment, but I don't see it as, um, so far it really hasn't been that big of a, um, yeah, that big of an issue. And, and I mean, for us, you know, Marlene talks about the middle, we really work at the top. We really, you know, work at kind of the super vendor category right now, which is the hardest to change but also the people who have the most risk capital um, and have the most volume to be able to kind of run through uh, machines to get their full, you know, the full value out of it. But as that continues, that technology will just continue to kind of become more and more uh, democratic uh, in, in who can use it uh, and at what price point um, to the point where, you know, you're suddenly maybe able to, um, you know, to provide it to smaller and smaller businesses with higher and higher um, variation uh, with lower product. So, so Marlene, one, one final question. Um, you know, how much of this is education um, and getting people to understand that this labor arbitrage game kind of has to end? Um, that if you're only going to go after the, the cheapest FOB, um, that in the long term, that may not give you the best margin and that while on demand, um, A, there may be an upfront investment, as Pete, you're saying, or maybe it's a little bit more expensive to work with Zeal on a, a piece by piece basis. But the, but the beauty is you're not, you don't have this inventory and, and this overstock, which you're marking down or you're not selling. And so you're more profitable, you're more liquid and you're able to react uh, quicker. Now, I don't know what that means for the millions and millions of people that are globally employed in the supply chain. And that's, that's a whole nother conversation. And, you know, hopefully, you know, when computers came out, we worried about what's going to happen to, to these millions of people and, you know, companies evolve, technology evolves, but do you think a lot of this has to go back to just educating people on first costs and, and total margin instead of first, you know, look, looking at the, the, the total margin that they get out the door versus the initial margin markup that they think they're going to get? Yeah, I mean, the, the selling process is definitely a consultative selling process. Um, you know, I will never tell my uh, my clients that they're going to get the cheapest thing with me because they're not. If you have to, if, if we make our goods eco-friendly in the USA uh, for our clients um, and therefore, you know, my cost of goods sold, uh, my cost of goods made, um, even if I do it, you know, fully, fully automated, uh, will always be more expensive than if it would have been made in Asia, uh, I can use automation to drive my uh, to drive my costs down, 
Um, but uh, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> I can use automation to uh, to drive my costs down, but cost of goods made in America are basically higher than in the USA uh, than in Asia. That said, you know, in the in the in this in this selling process, exactly the points that you make are okay. You don't have 40% oversupply, so that's where it starts. Um, the result of that is that you don't have your 20% average write-offs. You don't have your brand dilution because you consistently have everything on sale. I mean, there's certain brands that, you know, I know if I need a new pair of pants and um, I, I always buy it at the same brand. I know I just wait two weeks for an email because I'm always going to get a, a coupon. Right. So, um, so brand dilution, write-offs, markdowns are the three things that you know will enable a brand to have a higher perceived value and more stable uh you know if you if you go on the ground more stable much more stable margins so the way we always talk is okay yes your price of me buying it is higher but in the end you have a stable margin which is actually higher than if you buy it cheaper elsewhere but then get stuck with the inventory which is essentially Zara's secret formula with that, you know, exactly. They, they, which, no matter how many times people read and talk about it, uh, they can't, that's, that is, they the win formula. because they have the best supply chain. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so, so Pete Marlene, uh, I think this is, this is eye opening. I think this is just the beginning of, of many conversations, uh, between us and, and really with you and the industry. Um, this is only going to evolve and, um, I thank you for, for being with us today. Just a quick question for both of you. Any of uh, our listeners that want to get in touch with you, uh, talk to you about potentially engaging with your services or have any questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Pete, what would be uh, the best way? Uh, through our website. Um, best way, uh, go to uh, softwareautomation.com. There's a contact us form. Um, they can email, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's also a good way, but otherwise through the websites, great. Uh, we've got a team of people that can, um, help, uh, help them kind of navigate. Great. And, uh, Marlene. Same thing. You can find me through the website, through LinkedIn, or you can also email the email me directly at Marlene at zealware.com. And that's, uh, what's the website for zeal? Zealware, Z I E, uh, L W E A R.com. Great. All right, guys, thank you again for your time. Uh, take care.